It's Friday, February 10th, and the worst-case scenario has gotten even worse. We start here. The earthquake death toll surges in Turkey as rescues become more and more infrequent. Well, your relatives. I'm so, I'm so sorry. Ian Panel is racing between towns, and he just called in to describe what he's seeing. It wasn't ever a thing in elementary schools, but it is a thing in colleges. It is about understanding and interpreting uh, what you read, and we're, we're being told that, that that's illegal. Now a Florida professor says he can't teach black history at a historically black university. And what can the Navy teach the NFL? I didn't join the Navy to be a female fighter pilot. I joined the Navy to be a fighter pilot. The historic takeoff right before kickoff. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. The day after a large earthquake shook the fault line that runs through Turkey and Syria, local officials began reporting hundreds of deaths, then thousands. The sheer scope of the devastation has become visible. Reports say more than a hundred buildings came down in Turkey. (laughs) The next morning, as we were all kind of wrapping our heads around it, some analysts were tossing out numbers. Somebody was fearing 20,000 dead. Our foreign editor, who knows more about disasters like this than I do, said, we'll be lucky if it's just 20,000, which at the time seemed completely made up. Like, it just did not compute in my mind. It would just be too devastating to be true. Well, yesterday, four days after those first tremors, we learned the death toll has indeed bolted past 20,000. More than 3,000 confirmed dead in Syria, more than 17,000 in Turkey alone, and there are still clearly a lot more bodies buried under the rubble. Have you lost any family members, sir? Yes, they have. For the last couple days now, our chief foreign correspondent, Ian Panel, has been there among the search and rescue teams, among the families, desperately looking for whatever life remains. So let's take you there right now. Ian joins us from the road, I believe. Where are you right now, Ian? Yeah, hi. Hi, Brad. Um, We've kind of recently left Antakya, which has to be one of the hardest hit uh, small cities, large towns. Uh, in the earthquake zone, um, and we're kind of heading really through the earthquake zone in southeastern Turkey, up the coastline, heading towards Adana, but there are a number of towns and villages uh, along the way. All of them are showing the scars from this earthquake. And what are the hardest hit areas? Like, not not just on the map, but like what type of areas are, are you kind of coming across? Yeah, I mean, Antakya in particular uh, seems to be very badly hit. And it's you know, it's a relatively poor, um, but, but not terribly poor kind of town. It's a medium size. It's got a lot of hustle and bustle. It's near the border with Syria. Uh, it's a mixed population of Kurdish, um, Turkish, Arabic speaking. And it's a town that I know really well because throughout our coverage, of the Syrian civil war, this was our base. I mean, it was really our home. We stayed there for weeks and weeks on a time. Um, I got a message very early on at the start uh, when the news started coming through the earthquake. A Turkish friend of mine, and she wrote very simply uh, a message on my phone saying, Ian, Antakya is gone. Wow. And yesterday we got to see for ourselves really the, the level of destruction. Almost every single building has been either raised to the ground or is tumbling to one side like some ocean liner that's starting to capsize. 
Imagine every disaster movie that you've ever seen. That's exactly what it looks like. You've got rescue crews moving around the debris. The air is thick uh, with this fine dust that's coming from a lot of the buildings there. They're looking for survivors, but most of all, they're pulling out bodies, putting them in body bags. We saw people um, with carts wheeling through the streets with bodies on them, putting them into the trunks of cars, taking them straight to the cemetery uh, to, to bury them. Uh, it, it's an incredible scene there. You see people walking along the streets uh, in tears. People dazed, people carrying what few possessions they managed to hold, uh, looking for somewhere to bed down for the night. Are you getting any help from the government? They are waiting to, you know, have... You're still waiting? And a number of days into this disaster, uh, what's striking is that, that people still have nowhere to go, that the level of assistance and the level of help it is fairly low. Six, seven-storey buildings have been pancaked flat. Ah, so they need to go underneath. And everywhere around you, you saw the grief, you saw the destruction, you saw the death, and you saw the devastation. Hey, and Ian, what does the rescue effort look like? Because you were there essentially as people were still trying to, to, to grab each other out of the rubble. Yeah, it varies a lot. I think on the whole, a lot of it is very ad hoc. I mean, in some places, it really is just extended family members um, getting hold of some kind of mechanical digger. Using that and using their bare hands and whatever tools they can uh, lay their hands on to try and clear some rubble away to try and search for the bodies or search for survivors. In other places, it's a little more organized. There are proper professional teams there who are used to searching through this kind of wreckage. Uh, every now and again, a whistle is blown. Everyone is urged to go quiet. While they listen, they use special listening devices trying to hear underneath the concrete to see if there is anyone there. And we've seen two very different scenarios in 48 hours. Does he know who the people are? One was a family, firstly, when we arrived, there were seven bodies um, uh, swaddled in blankets. All your relatives, I'm so, I'm so sorry. <laughs> there were people weeping and wailing over them and then they started to search through the debris of the property for one two-year-old child who was still missing <laughs> and after a number of hours they located the bedroom of the child and, and tragically he was also dead so that was eight members of one family and then yesterday a totally different scene it was much more professional what's what is the last three days been like for you? And the, the rescuers were able to locate a mother and a son um, who were still alive in the rubble. Suddenly there was this rush of the crowd. Someone shouted out, there are survivors, and everyone started running towards the site. After a number of hours, very painstaking, careful digging in very dangerous circumstances, uh, they brought out two uh, people who were injured but, but didn't look too seriously injured. More than three days after they were buried, seemingly alive, a mother and a son rescued alive from under the rubble.
a small rev hope that's kind of keeping this rescue effort underway. But the reality is this is now less about rescue and more about recovery. Yeah, I was going to say, Ian, that that seems to do you feel like you're essentially there as this is teetering into we're finding the last people we're going to find? Yes, I think so. No, no, you have to bear in mind uh, for religious reasons, people are trying to locate and bury the dead as quickly as possible. So you don't get any sense of a drop off in the urgency uh, in trying to locate people. And of course, people do remain hopeful. And every now and again, you know, you do see these odd miracles, if you like. But the truth is, there are almost no miracles here. I've never been anywhere where you're surrounded by so many bodies being pulled out, put into body bags, or, or swaddled in, in blankets, and just put into the trunks of cars, or put into the back of them, and then taken straight to, to the cemetery to be buried. Uh, everywhere around you, or sometimes even just lying there on the road, are multiple body bags. It's, a, it's difficult to keep up with the pace of need here. And the official figures, I have to say, you know, the family that we met a couple of days ago, the eight people, there were no officials there counting how many people had come out, how many people were dead. And you have to ask yourself the question, you know, how realistic is that number? As horrific as it is, I suspect the real number is higher, and I think everybody should brace themselves for it to become even higher again. The scale of destruction is so incredibly large, it's hard to imagine that it isn't going to double or triple the numbers that we're already looking at. Like, I, I cannot get my head around these numbers. All right, Ian Panel, they're on the road in Turkey right now. Stay safe, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Brad. All right, next up on Start Here, we've seen curriculum changes at predominantly white elementary schools, but now also historically black universities. Our series on Black History Month continues after the break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. With daylight saving time upon us, we're looking forward to more daylight and longer days from March through November. And while setting our clocks forward gives us the illusion of more time, it doesn't necessarily help businesses find qualified candidates any sooner. Fear not, there is a solution. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is your 24-7 hiring partner working tirelessly to connect you with the right candidate. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, it gets distributed to over 100 job sites, ensuring you reach a diverse pool of qualified individuals. Their smart technology scans thousands of resumes, matching you with people whose skills perfectly align with your job requirements. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a 
quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free, ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This morning, we're continuing our look at Black History Month during perhaps the most charged Black History Month the American education system has seen in years. Why am I being censored about my culture, something that is rooted in me? Why can't I talk about it? Yesterday in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, more than 200 high school students walked out of class after they described trying to put together a slate of events to commemorate Black History Month, only to be told by their supervisors they had to stay away from certain topics that made the administration uncomfortable. The school says it told the students nothing of the sort. The NAACP now says it's investigating. I don't know how you could talk about black history in this country without talking about slavery or the civil rights movement. Alabama is another one of these states, like Florida, that's banned critical race theory in K-12 education, which is confusing since critical race theory is not taught at those levels. Academics have seen CRT as something to discuss at the graduate college level and law school, questioning our assumptions about how systemic racism might have affected our laws. Well, in Florida, under Governor Ron DeSantis's Stop Woke Act, Critical race theory is now banned in state colleges as well. We are not going to allow teach that a person simply by virtue of his or her race, color, national origin, or sex is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive. That's wrong. In fact, it says it won't fund any college programs that support the curriculum in any form. So what does that mean for the college students that thought they were mature enough to handle these conversations? We continue our series today. Every week we're talking about how black history is being taught in regular classrooms amid this backlash. Let's go to Leroy Purnell. He's a law professor at Florida A&M University. He's also part of an ACLU lawsuit challenging what he's allowed to teach in his own classroom. Professor Purnell, thanks for being with us. The language of this law is kind of vague. So why are you alleging that it's so damaging to your curriculum? There are so many things about this uh, legislation that tries to demonize what you do. You know, one of the things that in legal education that we do is we're trying to prepare people to make transformative differences in the world around them. And so it's hard to talk about an important issue uh, like race without being able to talk about race, without being able to talk about the impact of race in the development of law and the implementation of law as well as the solutions uh, that have been attempted or may be attempted or might be good to consider. So uh, all of that goes under a cloud when you're told that your thought has to be uh, controlled and dictated by someone else in terms of, of what you can, uh, what you can, can't teach. So as I said, it's, it's, it's a kind of creation of an outlaw mm. that... Uh, is, is very troubling to try to, to be able to work in that capacity. It is important that students of color, black students and, and other students, understand history and its significance and be able to speak out about that and learn to interpret not only the specifics of individualized uh, racism, but how systems uh, have impact. And that's what this bill is really aimed primarily at, stopping, stopping people from doing that. And uh, I, I, I've said in the past, to me, it's, it's like telling us that we can't teach students, particularly students of color, to read. It has particular significance when you talk to students of color and people of color that we're being told, once again, that it's illegal to read uh, and it's illegal to learn. Mm. 
that harkens all the way back to slavery. Oh, and you mean literally like this idea historically that that black folks weren't allowed to read? Yeah, literally. I mean, reading involves understanding. We're being told that, that that's illegal, mm-hmm. that there's some interpretations you're not allowed to talk about and some interpretations that you cannot express in terms of a reality, quite frankly, of what communities of color, particularly African-American communities, face every day in the 21st century. It also gives a, a feeling and, and, and supports a notion that, that, once again, we're sort of being marginalized. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've often suffered from a, a homogenized history in which we were excluded. And laws like this is really promoting that again, that we, you know, uh, we're to be excluded, and not only to be excluded, but to be demonized if you try to talk about it. Are there examples of that, by the way? Or, or like, are there specific things that you think about? This is what I teach in my class. This is the exact sort of lesson or th- thing I'm trying to imbue students with that would be threatened here. Yeah, virtually every aspect of criminal procedure, as we know it today, has a race history to it. There's a level of intimidation out there about, about teaching about, well, what do we do about the fact that uh, you are three or four times likely as a person of color to be stopped by the police for no reason. Do we consider what the criminal justice system should do about that? Mm. What about sentencing? Uh, What about pretrial release? I have a history when I teach my class of pointing out to students, do you understand the history of how we got to, say, the exclusionary rule Mm. of search and seizure, that those have race origins to them? And these are eye-opening things for the students. I, I am always uh, a little bit amazed every time I teach these subjects uh, that students, their eyes are, are, are ag- uh, agog about, we didn't know that this had happened. We didn't know about a case like Brown versus Mississippi where they took a black man and hung him three times until he confessed. Uh, we didn't know about that. And, and it resulted in the first time to the United States Supreme Court to overturn a, a confession based on due process because uh, of uh, race. We know race was involved in that case because uh, at trial, they put a deputy on the stand and they asked the deputy, well, did, did you hang that the defendant until he confessed? And the deputy, in essence, said, yeah, I did it, but not too much for a Negro. So, you know, race plays a very important role. It's not an accusation of anyone. It's a, it's a, it's a discussion of reality. And so we're in a world where you're not allowed to talk about reality. And that is very, very disturbing. What impact does that have on students, you think? Like, especially at your college. We should point out, FAMU, this is a historically black college, like a state-funded, what is supposed to be a bastion of black thought. Like, if someone's teacher feels like they have to avoid these topics for fear of being defunded, what do you think ends up being the results of that student body down the line? One, students then have a lack of understanding of how the law developed, and they have a, a lack of understanding and, and perhaps an inability to make corrections in our legal system. As I said, we're preparing students to go out and be advocates and to make change in society. And when students aren't able to learn about the reasons for making change, then it's difficult for them to make the change. I'm wondering that as as laws like this become more prevalent or as they take effect, and we know that this law is being challenged right now, but as a professor, if the law or if if your administrators come to you and say, hey, Professor Purnell, you got to tone it down, man. Like, what what do you do as as an educator? Well, again, I can speak only generally about it. I won't say specifically what I do in in, in this instance. But as a general uh, matter, I think that someone who uh, commits themselves 
to producing the type of students I've just mentioned, people who are going to make a change in society. You're at a crossroads, and so you have to decide either I, out of fear of, uh, of what might be done to me, you'll decide not to, to teach in those areas or, or say those things, or you're uh, in a position of saying, you know what, I feel strongly enough about the importance of doing that I, I will have to risk the punishment. I will have to risk the danger. I made the comparison earlier on to slaves learning how to read. Well, you know, the penalty of, of, uh, of reading against the wishes of the slave master was death or dismemberment. If people could risk all that to teach people how to uh, read and understand, then uh, we may be in a position, those who teach, of saying, you know what, we need to stand up for what's right. But understanding that, that in doing so, we are not only incurring wrath, but we're, incurring, uh, we're potentially encouraging uh, punishment. All right, that is Leroy Purnell, professor at FAMU at Florida A&M University. Thank you so much for the time and perspective. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, let's get in formation. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. When you're watching the Super Bowl this weekend, don't tune out at the end of the anthem because high above the stadium, there will be a historic first. It's now been 50 years since women began flying in the U.S. Navy. It's been 30 years since they began flying combat missions. But for the first time this Sunday, the planes doing the Super Bowl flyover will all be piloted by women. As a football fan, when I got the call to do the Super Bowl flyover, it's it's almost like a dream initially. That's Lieutenant Katie Perkowski, call sign Jenga, who spends most years flying off an aircraft carrier in the Pacific. She'll be at the back of this diamond formation. Just up and to the left, going 345 miles an hour, will be Lieutenant Suzelle Thomas. And I am so new to the fleet that I don't have a call sign yet. Thomas was actually the first female pilot to qualify directly to fly these new F-35s instead of the old way of training on other aircraft first. But what I found extra cool here is that not only are all the pilots going to be women, but so are all the officers involved in this mission, as well as most of the ground support crew and jet maintenance team. The whole ecosystem has shifted in the last couple decades where none of this is remarkable. At least it shouldn't be. I didn't join the Navy to be a female fighter pilot. I joined the Navy to be a fighter pilot. And on some level, this kind of reflects what's also happening in businesses like the NFL right now. The public narrative might be that this is a man's sport watched by men when, according to actual data, women and girls make up about 46% of the NFL's fan base, tens of millions of customers. Analysts say gone are the days of thinking women will watch men's sports if they can buy a pink jersey. Now, that type of otherizing actually drives potential fans away. 
Rather, the NFL says the sport is continuing to grow because it's welcoming in people to participate in the game as they are. More women are working in the league. More girls are playing football at the youth level, tackle and flag, than they were 10 years ago. And as eyes turn skyward in Phoenix, I'll be thinking about how once you open the playing field, it's incredible just how fast these trends can move. I asked yesterday if anyone here listened to Start Here with their pets. Well, let me just shout out our listener, Kelly Kleinberg, who didn't just post a picture of her dog, Pren Pren, listening to the show. He's also posing with his imitation Doritos toy. Also, former ABC correspondent Cecilia Vega wrote in just to say her dog, Jalisco, stands with doggos everywhere when it comes to toy rights, even the ones that might be infringing trademarks. If you want to follow up, as always, we're at Start Here ABC on the social meds. Start Here is produced by Kelly Therese, Jen Newman, Brenda Salinas Baker, Madeline Wood, Vika Aronson, Iru Ekpanobi, Cameron Chertavian, and Tara Gimbel. Ariel Chester is our social media producer. Josh Cohen is director of podcast programming. I'm our managing editor. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. Thanks to Lakia Brown, John Newman, and Liz Alessi. Special thanks this week to Sohel Udin and our teams in Turkey, Kirat Radia, Will Gretzky, Candace Smith, and Anthony Ali. I'm Brian Milkey. See you next week. Mm-hmm.